Well, so for the last four weeks, we've been in a series called How to Make Your Boat Less Rockable. The idea that we've been, been playing off of here is kind of like when somebody tells you, hey, be careful not to rock so-and-so's boat, because if you get them off tempo, it's going to be a really bad day. And some people are very rockable, but we've talked in this series about how all of us have a little bit of rockability in our lives. Remember we said there's, there's kind of like two versions of us. There's the, the, the good version of us that we want to believe is who we really are uh, when we're behaving very much like ourselves, and we're thinking right and we're acting right and we're doing what we believe God wants us to do. And then there's the bad version of ourself that we don't like to think about a whole lot, that sometimes when we flip out and we say things we don't mean and we do things we don't mean or we act out of character... And in week one, we talked about your R factor, your rockability factor. How much stress, difficulty, challenges, problems can you take before you end up getting pushed across the line from the good version of yourself to the bad version of yourself? And we said in that week one that a lot of times fear, and especially fear of the worst happening, can really be the thing that causes us to step across. Um, and, and then the second week, what we said was that uh, if you're interested in being an optimist, it's always important to recognize that it's very difficult to see good in the world around us if we don't see good within ourselves. Uh, and we, we encouraged ourselves that week to think about ourselves in the way that God sees us uh, and to see good in ourselves so that we can see good in the world around us. And then the, the last week, we talked about what we focus on, what we give our attention to. And we said that we shouldn't just open the doors of our mind wide open and just let anything come in and go out. It shouldn't take the car wash approach to life, just sit down, drive in, let everything wash over you and see what happens. Um, but rather, we should be careful about what, uh, what gets our focus. And we said last week that what we pay attention to largely determines our future, it largely determines our destiny. So those three things that we've talked about in the previous weeks, they're really internal things, internal issues. Uh, this week, we're going to kind of flip it a little bit, and we're going to talk about an external thing. We're going to talk about what do you do with people who are intentionally trying to cause you problems, boat rockers, people who are trying to rock your boat on purpose. And I need to make that distinction because in our lives, all of us are going to have some people who rock our boat on accident, not on purpose, and I need to make that distinction. Um, you know, like for instance, when you get in a conflict with your spouse and, you know, I don't know if you're like me, when I'm in a conflict with my spouse, I'm usually giving as much as I'm getting. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, can, I can be as much of a boat rocker as anybody else can be. But in conflict, sometimes we accidentally rock the other person's boat just because we're upset or they may rock ours. Or you may have somebody in your life who creates stress for you, but they're not intending to. They, they just sort of accidentally stumble into it. Um, and that's not what we're talking about today. We're not talking about the conflict or the issues that you have with an accidental boat rocker. Um, if you're interested in that topic, three months ago we did a series called We Need to Talk, and there's a, 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 one of the talks in that series is called We Fight Too Much. That talk was specifically on that topic. Um, but we're going in a different direction this week. We're talking about people who are really trying to torpedo you. We're talking about somebody who has it out for you. They're, they're gunning for you. Um, and you may not have somebody in your life like this right now, but someday you will. And so we're going to deal with that. One of the reasons that I want to talk about an accidental boat rocker, and, and I, I, or the reason I wanted to make the, the distinction between an accidental boat rocker and an on-purpose one is I'm trying to avoid a problem that, that might take place. Uh, my dad used to tell a sermon illustration years ago. It's one of my favorites as a kid growing up, of a missionary who was brand new on the field. He'd just gotten out of Bible college, just got his training, just went through language school. Everything was very new for him. And his mission agency decided to send him out to a people group that had never been reached before. They sent him out to a tribe that had never had any kind of missionary presence. He's still green. He's still new. He's getting his feel for what this is all about. He goes out to this tribe, and, and civilization has not reached this place yet. And he's so amazed at all these things that, that the tribe doesn't even know anything about. Specifically, he's impressed by the fact that they don't know anything about weddings. 
And that kind of bugs him because he's very Americanized. He thinks, you know, there ought to be a wedding. There's people here who are married, but they haven't had a wedding. We've got to fix this. So he goes to the chief of the tribe, and he says, we need to have, like, a mass wedding. Like, we need to get everybody together, and we need to do the vows and go through it and do the, do the ceremony, and that way everybody can be good. You know, I just don't want I'm not comfortable with things being the way that they are right now. So the chief says, all right, we'll do it. They have this big, massive wedding ceremony. All the, all the people from the tribe come in, and they, they repeat the vows and go through this whole deal. And it's a really good time. Everybody has a blast. Everybody's very up-tempo. It's a great event. And this missionary thinks, I'm really, you know, I really did a good thing here. This, this, this is a real positive. This is one of my first shining achievements as a missionary with this group. And he goes to the chief, and he says, how do you feel like it went? And the chief says, oh, it went great. I loved it. Everybody loved it. You know, our favorite part was when we all got new wives, right? So... So I'm not trying to be the preacher who causes trouble here, okay? I'm going to spend this morning talking to you about the fact that you don't need to accommodate a button pusher. You don't need to make space in your life for somebody who's intentionally trying to cause you pain and and distress. But I'm not encouraging you to jettison your spouse, okay? I'm not encouraging you to kick people out of your family, right? There are people in life who accidentally push our buttons. But we're talking specifically this morning about somebody who's, who's out to get you. Um, And specifically, I said last week that we were going to talk about how Jesus dealt with it. And I need, to, I need to make a quick disclaimer about that because obviously if we open the pages of the Bible and we look at the Gospels and we read the stories of how Jesus interacted with other people on earth, we can try to learn from him and we can try to follow in his footsteps as much as we can. But also there are going to be some differences because Jesus is God and we're not. And so I recognize we can't just lift wholesale encounters that Jesus had with other people and say, let's do exactly what he did because he's God and we're not. He, underst- he has infinite wisdom, infinite understanding. And we don't have those things at our disposal. And yet we have this awesome verse in John chapter 13, verse 15, where Jesus says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. And this is specifically about relationships. Jesus is is talking about that we should follow his example in relationships. So I think it is cool, I think it is biblical, and it is reasonable that we look at what Jesus did in these interactions and we try to extract what we as human beings can do to imitate him in those situations. That's exactly what we're going to be doing. Now, Jesus did have both accidental button pushers and on-purpose button pushers in his life. If you want to see an accidental button pusher, just look at the disciples. Uh, they, They did that pretty often. Peter especially. Peter was a professional button pusher. He was very good at it. But he didn't do it on purpose. It was accidental. And it was part of his journey. It was part of his his process of trying to learn about God and to learn about truth. And so it was accidental. Watch what Jesus does with a Peter. Watch what Jesus does with a woman at the well. Watch what Jesus does in his interactions with these people. He's always kind. He's always gracious. He's always very nice. And he's always trying to help them find the truth that they're looking for. But watch Jesus with this other group. This other group of people, the Pharisees, we're going to be talking about, they were on purpose button pushers. They were out to cause trouble. And Jesus just does not have a lot of patience for them. Jesus, the loving, kind, and gracious uh, 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 Son of God that we watch coming into earth and being so, so kind to people and giving so much uh, uh, room for them to come along and to learn and to understand, is all of a sudden very sharp, very, very forceful, very hard-hitting with these people. And so I think it's important for us to learn 
Why? Why why be different with these people? Why have a different life approach towards these people? What did he do that was helpful for us? And what can we learn about button pushers especially? And this is where I need to ask for your help. Would you do this for me? I need you to give me the opportunity to kind of set this up a little bit. I'm going to give you some very practical, I hope, uh, ideas towards the end of the message for what you can do with your button pushers. But I really need you to give me some a little bit of patience because this story between Jesus and the Pharisees is very involved, has a lot of moving parts. And I'm going to try to set it up uh, as succinctly as I can for you. But I want you to get a picture of what a real button pusher looks like, what a real boat rocker looks like. And the Pharisees certainly would qualify. If you're dealing with this kind of person in your world, there's somebody who's out to torpedo you, you're probably asking yourself, how did they get to be this way? Because the one thing that you probably know outright is they don't see the world the way everybody else sees the world. They certainly don't see the world the way you see it. When they look at the world, they see something completely different. And their version of reality is, is skewed. It's different. And so I don't know if you're like me. One of my first questions is, how did it get this way? How did they, how did they come to see things? How did they come to see me this way? I don't understand. So one of the things that we can ascertain from reading this is that when, when a person is a real boat rocker, usually it's because they've faced some sort of crisis in their life. They, they, they've hit a wall. A crisis is like, when you, when you have a, a moment of crisis in, in your life, it's like hitting a wall. It's like you've been going in this direction, and all of a sudden you realize you can't keep going in this direction anymore. That's what a crisis is. And you're going to have to turn to the right or to the left, but you can't keep going the way you were. For instance, a financial crisis is when you sit down to do the bills and you realize you don't have enough money to pay the bills. And you realize this has happened several times. It's a financial crisis. You realize you can't keep going the same direction that you've been going. You're going to have to make a course, you're going to have to make a course change. Um, or maybe in a relationship. You, you, you hit that moment where you realize that if, if things continue on in the relationship as they have up until this point, the relationship's not going to survive. So it's like hitting a wall. You realize you're going to have to, you're going to, have to make a change. The reason crises can actually be a good thing. So if you're in the middle of a crisis, a crisis today, let me tell you, a crisis can be a good thing. Because generally what a crisis is there to do is to help us embrace a reality that we've been avoiding. That's the purpose of a crisis. If it's a financial crisis, it's been, there's some sort of financial reality that, that I've been trying not to pay attention to, and all of a sudden, I deal with this issue, whether it's an accounting issue or something that comes to my attention, and I realize I'm going to have to embrace this. I, I, I didn't want to think about this. I didn't want to have to deal with this, but I'm going to now have to embrace it. A relationship crisis, same thing. I've been trying not to pay attention to this, but now I'm going to have to pay attention to it. Now I'm going to have to deal with it. It's reality that comes into your world. A healthy person, okay? will take the, the reality that the crisis brings and they'll accept it. That's, it's, not, it's not fun. Nobody likes being in a crisis. But when that crisis shows up at your door, you go, okay, this is reality I've been avoiding, but I need to pay attention to it. I need to deal with it. I need to accept it. I need, I, I need to digest it. And I need to let this impact the way that I make choices in the future. There is a subset of the population who's been avoiding reality. They hit the crisis. Reality shows up on their doorstep and they they further push reality away. They choose, they choose to push back against the reality that's, that, that's shown up. And what's interesting about it is you have a person who had a slightly, view, slightly skewed view of the world up until now. Now when they push back against the reality of that crisis, now they have a really skewed view of the world. It's like now, now in order to live in the wor- in order to live in this world, they have to come up with a skewed view of, of how relationships work, how the world works, how, what you are, what I am. And it's like they're from a different planet. All of a sudden, they see things very differently. And that's what happened with the Pharisees. They hit a, they hit a crisis moment, and they pushed back against reality. Now, you should know that the, the, the crisis that the Pharisees hit was a, was a big one. Not the same one that everybody else is going to hit, but they hit a big crisis because they hit a God crisis. The Pharisees weren't always 
troublemakers. If you're a student of the Bible and you read about the Pharisees, it's easy to get an impression of them that they were very difficult people. They were, they, they were always out to get Jesus, and certainly they were instrumental eventually in having Jesus crucified. But, but sometime earlier, the Pharisees w- were a good group of people. There, there, was a, there was a large group of people going around saying, we shouldn't take the Bible literally anymore. We, 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 shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be too worried about God's character because God is kind of whatever we want to make him be. And, and we, can just sort of, we, we can sort of decide for ourselves what God is like. We can decide what parts of the Bible that we want to pay attention to. And we don't really need to pay attention to God's rules or anything like that. We can just sort of live however we want to. Um, and the Pharisees for quite a while said, no, God is supreme. He is, uh, he is the creator of the universe. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. The, the scriptures are for real, and we need to pay attention to them, and we need to take them literally. And God does have rules and structure, and we need to pay attention to it. That's a good thing. They, for, for, for a while, they were carrying the torch of, of the truth so that people could understand the truth about God. And they really became the spiritual authorities. People looked up to them as people who understood what God was all about, and they were sort of like the church leaders, and that was a good thing. But then they hit a little bit of a crisis, and it had to do with their view of God. And, and, and here's a crisis that you're going to hit, or not, not a crisis, but a question that all of us are going to have to answer. If you believe in a perfect God, which I do, and if you believe that that God is all-powerful, and that he created this universe, and if you believe that you are imperfect, as I believe that I am imperfect, at some point you're going to have to ask the question, how does an imperfect person connect with a perfect God? How does an imperfect person please a God who has no flaws in him, is completely perfect? And so there's, there's three different views that a person can take. One is a person can say, well, you know, God is all about love and grace. He's the Pillsbury Doughboy in the sky, and he'll do whatever you want him to do. And, and really, honestly, we shouldn't really worry about his character or his rules and his boundaries. The, those aren't really important anyhow. Really, all you, need to understand, all you need to understand about God is that he's about love and grace. And that's what it, so to please a perfect God, that's all you need to understand. Then there's going to be another group of people who are going to say, no, actually, God is about rules and boundaries. And so if you want to please a perfect God, you have to follow all of God's rules and all of God's boundaries. And if you break any of God's rules or his boundaries, you're not pleasing God. And so that, this is an oversimplified view of the two groups of people at the time that we're living. You had these people who said, we can make the scripture say whatever we want. You had the Pharisees saying, no, the scriptures are, are for real and we need to pay attention to God's rules and boundaries. But they became, the Pharisees became so obsessed with God's rules and boundaries that eventually they believed that if you didn't follow God's rules and boundaries, you couldn't have a relationship with him. If, if, you, if you did not perfectly follow all the things God said to do, you couldn't be in a relationship with him. So that's, a, that's an issue. By the way, I said there are three views, right? One is God is all about love and grace. Don't need to worry about his rules and boundaries. View number two is God is all about rules and boundaries. Love and grace really doesn't play a, play a role. And then here's what the Bible teaches. This is for free, right? This isn't part of my talk. But the Bible teaches that God is about a relationship. And like any healthy relationship... It includes both love and grace and rules and boundaries. Your kids are not your kids because they follow your rules and boundaries, yes? Your kids are your kids because they're your kids. And yet you do have rules and boundaries, correct? And when your kids follow your rules and boundaries, there is harmony in your home, right? There's peace in your home. Things are going well. There's, there's, there's unity. There is intimacy. Everybody's happy. Things are good. But when your kids do not follow your rules and boundaries because they are imperfect, just as you are, When they break your rules and boundaries, there is love and grace. It keeps the relationship going. But if you try to take part of this out, you're going to have a crisis. If you try to take love and grace out of the picture, you're going to have a crisis. If you take rules and boundaries out, you'll heal. And here's here's what I mean by that. In your relationship with God, if you say God is all about love and grace and rules and boundaries don't matter, the crisis you're going to hit is that you're going to never know God. 
Because God does have structure. It's part of his character. You cannot divorce God from his structure. The Bible says God is a God of justice. So if, if you believe that this is all God is about, you'll never get to know him. You'll hit a crisis there because it'll never be real. But then again, if you believe that God is all about rules and boundaries and you reject his love and grace, the crisis you're going to hit is that you're going to never be good enough. You're always going to find out that you cannot follow all of God's rules. That was the crisis that the Pharisees hit. Remember I said a button pusher hits a crisis and will not accept reality. This is what the Pharisees did. They, got, they said life is all about rules and boundaries. And remember, they're the church leaders. And so this is what they're teaching everybody. They're spending their lives teaching everybody. You get, to, you get close to God by following his rules and boundaries. The little sign out front of the church said, helping people connect with God through rules, right? And, and so here's what they did. Because they hit this crisis, we're not going to make God happy. Oh, by the way, forgive me for backtracking. Proof, proof of concept, okay? Look at Jesus with the woman who was caught in adultery. Beautiful, beautiful story. Here the Pharisees, they bring this woman that was caught in the act of adultery to Jesus, which, by the way, do not ask me how the Pharisees caught her in the act of adultery. But they did. They get her, they take her, they bring her to Jesus, and they say, should we stone her? Uh, we, we could, given the law of Moses, so should we. And Jesus says uh, to them, okay, and by the way, our culture loves this verse. They, they said, Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, right? And then he starts drawing in the dirt. We don't know what he drew. He might have started writing out a list of the sins of each of the people that were standing around. He might have written their names. We have no idea what, what he was writing. But what we do know is that as he was writing, the, those men who brought her to Jesus started making their swift exit. Eventually, it's just Jesus and this woman there in this interaction. And he says to her, where are your accusers? One of the most beautiful lines in the scripture. He says, where are your accusers? And she says, well, they're gone. And he said, neither do I accuse you, or neither do I condemn you. Love and grace. Go and sin no more. Rules and boundaries. Relationship. Right? Cut into the Gospels. Look at interactions with Jesus over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus says a relationship is the most important thing. A relationship is, and, and what, Jesus, what Jesus wanted everybody to understand, including the Pharisees, was that a relationship was more important than rules and boundaries. But now we got a little bit of a problem. Because the Pharisees had built a career on rules and boundaries. So when Jesus came to earth saying that a relationship is more important than rules and boundaries, it kind of messed with their system. Remember I said that, that when you hit a crisis and you need to avoid reality, then you have to set up a skewed worldview. The way that the Pharisees set up their skewed worldview is first off, they change the rules. So this is what happens. By the way, what, if you're a student of religion, look, look through the past several hundred years and see if this hasn't happened over and over and over and over and over again. People hit this crisis. God must be about rules and boundaries. That's what he's about. But we can't follow all God's rules. How do you know for sure that you've loved your neighbor as yourself? How do you know for sure that, husbands, you've loved your wife the way Christ loved the church? How do you know for sure that you've forgiven everybody who's, 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 who's sinned against you? It's too nebulous. And on top of that, beyond nebulous, I can think of examples where I've broken all of those. And so because you can't follow all those rules, what the Pharisees did was instead of embracing God's love and grace, which was the reality the crisis was designed to help them embrace, what they did was they reinterpreted God's rules. They rewrote the test. And they made God's rules about doing little things. So instead of following God with all your heart, mind, and soul, it was about the length of the tassels on your robe. And instead of forgiving the person who sins against you, it was about, are you making sure that you're tithing off everything that you make? Instead of, 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 of connecting with God at a basic level and doing what God calls you to do and following your mission in life, it was about how many times you ceremonially washed your hands and whether you did it right. And, and I don't know if you've seen this in your life, but when people get to this place, they create obsession in people. 
That's what the Pharisees did. They created obsession. It's like I've met people before who think they have to say a certain prayer a a certain number of times to, to, to get God's approval, or they have to do a certain act a certain number of times so that God will be happy with them. It, it, it creates an obsession that I have to do these things so that, so that God will be okay with me. And the reason those things were even invented in the first place was because the rules were too hard to follow, and instead of embracing God's love and grace, somebody said, well, we better rewrite the test so that we can feel good about ourselves, so that we can believe we follow the rules, so that we can be okay with God, which is what the Pharisees did. Give you an example. Matthew 15, uh, verse 3. Jesus replied to one of the Pharisees, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Here's what's going on here. When Jesus, in in the Old Testament, uh, God's people are mostly in an agricultural society, farming, keeping animals, and so forth. And, and when parents would retire from what they did, they were no longer able to work. The kids would be taking over the work, and the parents would live with their kids until they passed away. And this would happen for generation after generation after generation. By the time you get to the New Testament, things have shifted a little bit. And there are a lot more people who are living the city life. There are a lot more people who have a trade, who have some sort of commerce that they're doing. And so what would happen is these kids would grow up and they would leave mom and dad and they would go start their own career and they would go start their own income stream and have their own bank account and they wouldn't want to support their parents when their parents couldn't work anymore. And, and the Bible said that the kids should. There was no social security. There was no government system to take care of the parents. So the Bible said that the kids should take care of the parents. And if my kids are anywhere on the property listening, it is good for the kids to take care of the parents. Right? Just write that one down. Um, so what would happen is these people would go to the Pharisees and they would say, well, help us out with this because we really don't want to take care of our parents. It's too much of a burden. And they said, well, here's what you do. If you, can, if, if you were to tell your parents that your income is something that you have devoted to God, then you can honestly tell them that you can't give it to them because after all, you have devoted it to God. Now, you can spend it, but you, you can't give it to them because after all, they might do something bad with it. So you've devoted it to God. You need to be the custodian of it, right? And in this way, you can get away without doing what the Bible says you have to do in the first place. And this is what Jesus was saying. He's saying, guys, guys, you've rewritten the test. You, you, you think that you're okay with God because you do all your little things. You, do, you have all your things. You've got your little prayer box on your sleeve, and it's the right size, and you, your tassels are the right length, and you go to the temple at the right times, and you pray the right ways. You think that you're okay, but what you have done is you have effectively rewritten God's guidelines, and that's not going to be all right. No wonder when Jesus showed up on the scene, they weren't real happy about it. In the time that we've spent together in these last few weeks, I've talked a little about some psychological constructs, and, 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 and I, I do that because the series has lent itself well to it. I'm not a, I'm not a psychology expert. I'm a psychology geek. Uh, I, I like studying it. I like learning about it. As a person who coaches couples, it's a very, it's, it's very interesting uh, field for me to, to look at and, and see the research that's coming out. One of the things I love is that as research is getting better and better and better, um, good research done well always vindicates the Bible, which is just always cool to see. It's always neat to see the, 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 the outcomes of a study and say, well, I can take you right to the Bible where it was already, it was there, you know, thousands of years ago. But uh, there's, a, there's a concept in psychology, and it's been around for quite a while. It's kind of becoming a, a, a business buzzword right now um, called cognitive dissonance. You may have heard of that before. Cognitive dissonance just means that our brains don't do too well with trying to accommodate two incompatible ideas or incompatible thoughts or incompatible beliefs. I'll give you a good example of this. And if you're a smoker in this room, I'm not poking fun at you, and I'm not, I'm not making fun of your habit. But think about this. If you're in this room, think, all of us, let's, let's process this for a second. Imagine that you work at the Surgeon General's office. So your whole day is 
inundated with medical warnings. But you see the smoker's warning over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And yet, if you were, say, a chain smoker who smoked four packs a day, that's cognitive dissonance. You've got two incompatible realities in your life, and you're going to have to find a way to make them play nicely in the sandbox together. So you're going to come up with something like, well, getting out of bed in the morning is taking a risk. Or I don't have any family history of cancer. Or my great uncle Dave lived to be 105 and he smoked more than I do. So you take these two incompatible feelings, thoughts, beliefs, and you find a way to make them work together. Another example, when you were in preschool and you, and you learned the Aesop's fables, do you remember the fable of the fox and the grapes? Right? So the fox is walking along, and the fox sees this, these low-hanging grapes, and he thinks, I think I want those. And so he tries to get the grapes. He jumps up, and, but he's just not quite tall enough. He can't jump quite high enough. And so after a long time trying to get him, he finally gives up. And as he walks away from the grapes, you remember what he said? The, they, those must have been sour grapes, right? This is where, if you're wondering, this is where we get the, the, the term sour grapes from, right? So I want it. I can't have it. It must have been bad anyway, right? Um, uh, an example of this in relationships, almost six years ago when I first started working with couples, I would get this weird story, but I would hear it over and over again. I'd have somebody come in and say, now, now Jonathan, my spouse cheated on me. They're the one who went outside the marriage. Then I wanted to go to counseling and try to make it right. They wouldn't go to counseling with me. They pretty much abandoned our kids. They went off and they lived a completely different life, um, and I had to take care of everything. It, everything fell in my lap. And then a couple years down the road, I met this person. And it's a healthy relationship, and we're doing so good, and we're getting along so well, and everything is so great, except for this one thing. My ex-spouse, the one who cheated on me, is trying to torpedo us. Like, every time we turn around, this person is coming after us, with, and, and they're trying to create all kinds of problems and drama, and I don't understand. I, I wasn't the one who did something wrong. Why are they coming after me? Well, it doesn't make any sense until you think about it in terms of cognitive dissonance, then it makes all the sense in the world. Because you've got the cheater who's going, okay, well, it's not good to cheat, so I get that, but yet I did it. So I got to make those, those things play nicely together. So my spouse must have been the devil. Right? My, my, my spouse must have been impossible to live with. They must have driven me to cheat. My spouse must have created a situation where I was out of my mind and did something that I should never have done. Right? But then that spouse that they think drove them to cheat, this is how they make their world make sense. That spouse that drove them to cheat is now in a healthy relationship with a wonderful person and everything seems to be going well. And in essence, that relationship has torn up the cheater's ability to make sense of the world. It's torn up their ability to make the world make sense. That cheater hit a crisis, and they pushed back against reality, and they've created drama now because they just need everybody else to play along with their picture of the world. And the moment that that healthy relationship takes root, it tears apart their grid. And that's exactly what happened to the Pharisees. The Pharisees needed for rules and boundaries to be the way that people connected with God because that's, that's how they had made their career. And when Jesus came to earth, Jesus was not talking about rules and boundaries. Jesus was talking about having a relationship with God. And in addition to all of that, all of the power and the miracles and the awesome things that they had read about that happened in the Old Testament that they had never seen in person, but they had read about, and they knew because they were God's ambassadors, they should see a little bit of that power in their life, but they never saw it. Now Jesus is here, Jesus is talking about a relationship, and Jesus is doing all these things, and it tears up their grid. They can't make sense of the world anymore. No wonder they were upset. No wonder they were pushing back. Jesus brought reality back to them. He created a new crisis. 
And he showed them how incompatible their beliefs were. I'm going to read you a couple of passages rapid fire here from Luke chapter 11. I didn't give these to the tech team, so bear with me. But I want you to look at the dissonance between this. Jesus says, you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. Meaning, you don't just take 10% of what's in your checkbook. You go out to your garden in your backyard. You go to your little dill plant, your little herb. And you make sure that you pick off 10% of the, of the sprigs of the dill on your plant. So that you can make sure that you've absolutely, obsessively followed all the rules to the nth degree so that God's not mad at you. He said, you do that, you tithe even the tiniest income from your gardens, but then you ignore justice and the love of God. Dissonance. He said, you crush people with unbearable religious demands, but you never lift a finger to ease their burden. Dissonance. He said, you, you, you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces, but you, rem, you remove the key to knowledge from people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves and you prevent others from entering. That's dissonance. And every time Jesus didn't play by their rules, every time he didn't live up to their picture of the world, he made them very uncomfortable. So where does this connect with you and your boat rocker? I told you I was going to try to give you some practical help today for that. Well, first, we've learned a little bit about the person who's rocking your boat. First, they, they dealt with a crisis. Something, for some reason, they were avoiding reality. Reality showed up on their doorstep. They weren't ready to receive it. They pushed back against reality. Because they pushed back against reality, they created a skewed view of the world, and they need the world to play along with their view. And you've brought somehow, because if, if you're going, you know, what did I do to them? I mean, I don't know if you're like me. If somebody comes after me, I'm wondering, what did I do to them? How, why on earth are they coming after me? If that's where you're at, you should just know what you did is you brought reality to their skewed view. And it caused them to be uncomfortable. You shouldn't apologize for that. That's just part of life. One of the most beautiful things about, the, about living a life that is embracing God's truth and taking as much of it as we can get in is that we get to live in the real world, which is really cool. When a person pushes back against God's truth, you don't get to live in the real world. You only get to live in the world that you create for yourself. So you shouldn't apologize for bringing the real world to somebody's skewed view. That's just life. Jesus didn't apologize for it. And if you, if you have a boat rocker in your life and there's that discomfort, that dissonance, here's a couple things you need to know. Here's a couple things you need to do. Here's the first one. You need to not let them change who you are because that is what is at risk. What is at risk is that they will pressure you to fit with their skewed view of the world. So they choose to see the world this way, and they need you to play along. They'll be completely comfortable so long as you play by their rules. But if you don't play by their rules, you're going to have some tension. You're going to have some conflict. I truly believe. Look at the, see, if I'm, see if I'm not right. Look at the beginning of the Gospels. Look at the first interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees. At the very beginning, you don't see a lot of tension and hostility. What you see is the Pharisees coming to check Jesus out. They're coming to show up and hear what is he, what is he teaching. What is he, trying to, what is he trying to say? And it's almost as though the tension doesn't happen until there's these moments where the Pharisees are kind of saying to him, hey, we can get along. Just play by our rules. Just do things our way. Just, you know, I mean, I mean, tip your hat to our customs, would you please? I mean, would you just kind of go along to get along? Why do you got to create such problems for us? Check this out. This is in Luke chapter 11, verse 37. The Bible says, when Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So Jesus went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. And the Lord said to him, your Pharisees are so clean to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. I'm not going to read the rest of the passage, but I, I want to make sure that I make this clear. This is not a hygienic 
cleaning. This is not like, let's go wash our hands before dinner. This is a ceremonial thing. This is one of the obsessive things the Pharisees had gotten into. This was a rule that you followed to be right with God. So what they would do is before they would eat a meal, they would hold their hands out like this, you know, and they would pour a little bit of water, about a, about an eggshell and a half's worth of water over their, their fingertips, and they would let it run down just to about this place on the wrist, and it would drip off, right? And then they would put their hands down like this, and they would pour water the other way until it would drip off the fingertips. And this was how they would be ceremonially clean. They could eat their meal, and they were right with God. And the Pharisees loved this. I mean, they got into it. It was a big thing for them. And they wanted people to do this between courses because they figured, and this, and this is, by the way, this is how religion works. Once you get a, a, a ritual, a routine, something that you think, because I do this, I'm right with God, then it, be, it, become, it gets way blown out of proportion and it becomes everything. And so this, this hand-washing ritual, we, we, we should do it between courses. It shouldn't just be for the meal. We should do it every course. So, you know, you, you're washing your hands before the soup. You're washing your hands before the, the meat course. You're washing your hands before dessert. I mean, it was ridiculous. And so Jesus understood what was going on with this. Jesus walks in. This Pharisee invites him to dinner. Jesus sits down at the table. He and his disciples are ready for supper. And the Pharisees look at him like, are you crazy? Don't you want to be right with God? I mean, don't you want to do this? I mean, this is how we do, you know, and, and the, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. And this is something that people can see you following God. It's a big deal. And, you know, and you're a Jewish teacher, of course. I mean, you ought to be able to show us some new moves. I mean, yeah, we, we've been washing our hands for a while like this, but maybe you got some cool kind of something that we can, you know, I don't know, you know, and, and it was like, but when this happened, it was like, Jesus said, I need to tell you something. I need to bring you some reality. I'm going to have to share with you some dissonance. Because your hands are very clean, but your heart is very dirty. No wonder there was some tension. Jesus tore up the grid. It makes sense now. And if you're, if you're in a relationship with a button pusher, it's probably why you're experiencing that stress, but your identity should never be negotiable. Jesus, Jesus said, I, I'm not for sale. I, I'm, I'm not going to go along to get along because getting along isn't that important. And what's important is being right with God. And so here, here's what I want to tell you. Two of the most important things God has ever given you, other than your salvation, two of the most important things God has ever given you is your identity. See, you're unique. You're, you're, you're unlike anybody else. Your, your ideas, your thoughts, your, your approach to the world, it's, it's unique, it's different, it's different, and it's God-given. It's very, very valuable. The other thing is your mission. God has equipped you to do something. God has given you talents and skills and abilities, and he, he has a, a task for you, a plan, a, a, a purpose. He, he wants you to accomplish something great for, for, for your good and for his glory. And so those two things are, are wildly valuable. They're way more important than what's in your bank account or what's in your garage. It's, it's very, very important. And the, those are the first two things a button pusher will go after because your identity and your mission will threaten their view of the world. But don't capitulate. Don't knuckle under because your view, because your identity is too important for that. There are two kinds of people in this world. And I say that because as I was reading these texts, getting ready for this weekend, as I, and, I, and as I mentioned this earlier, Jesus is so soft and he's so tenderhearted and he's so gracious with one group of people. And then he turns and he talks, talks to the Pharisees. He's very harsh. He's very, very hard-hitting and very direct. And to understand why Jesus was one way with this group of people and a different way with this group of people, we need to understand that there are two kinds of people in this world. First is, there are people who are on a journey, a person on a journey. And the vibe that a person on a journey sends off is, I'm looking for truth or I'm in the process of embracing truth. I'll take truth whenever it shows up. I'll take reality whenever it shows up. In large part, New Spring Church 
is, is a group of people who are on a journey. We're not perfect. We never said that we were. But we are people who are looking for truth, and we embrace it every time God brings it to us. Every time God shows us truth, our goal is to embrace that truth. But there is another kind of person in this world, and that's a person with an agenda. And a person with an agenda sends this vibe off. I already have my own truth. Play along. I already have my skewed view of the world. I already have made sense of things the way that I need to make sense of things. So, hey, fit in. Fit in with my view of the world. Participate, okay, with how I need you to be so that I can keep making sense of the world this way. Jesus always, please hear me, because we need to follow his example here. Jesus always had patience for a person who was on a journey. Jesus always had patience for a Peter. He always had patience for a woman at the well. Anybody who was looking for truth or willing to embrace it whenever it showed up on the scene, Jesus always had patience for that person. Jesus had zero patience for a person who approached him with an agenda. And we shouldn't either. I want to read this passage to you. I could have picked, there, there are a ton of passages I could have picked, but Matthew chapter 21, uh, starting verse 23, is representative. The Bible says, Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching. He's on the, he, by, by the way, he's on the Pharisees' turf. He showed up at the church, and this is where the Pharisees believed. The Pharisees believed that they owned the church. And Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching. The leading priests and elders came up to him, and they demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Right? Pushing buttons. And Jesus said, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? So Jesus asked them a question in response. Now, I don't have time to read the rest of the passage, but when, they, when he asked them that question, the Pharisees didn't have an answer, and they said, well, we don't know. And he said, all right, well, if you can't answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. There are a lot of interactions like this. And I remember when I was in Bible college several years ago, my professor tried to explain passages like this by saying, well, this is what Jesus came to do. He came, he came to confound the wise. He came to find the people who thought they were so religiously brilliant and convinced them that they weren't brilliant. He came to teach them that they didn't know everything. And so he came with all this wisdom and he stumped them. And that's what Jesus was there to do. Well, Jesus did confound the wise. That is true. But I don't think that's what this passage is, should be showing us. I think what Jesus is trying to demonstrate for us here is that we should not take the guided tour through somebody else's drama. I mean, this person comes and says, I'm going to ask you a question. How come you get to do all these things? And Jesus said, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. Jesus is saying, I'll deal with your drama, but on my terms. I'll, I'll deal with what you bring into my world, but I'm going to deal with it my way. And some of us, some of us need to, to be released from a lot of tension that we've experienced in our life to recognize that if you're going to deal with somebody else's drama, you are perfectly within your rights to handle their drama on your terms. You don't have to take the guided tour. You don't have to, and you know when you deal with this person, they come to you, they already have the conversation planned out. They know how they're going to criticize you. They know how they're going to set you off on the defensive. They know how they're going to push your buttons. And you're broadsided by it because you didn't know what was coming. But you sit there and you think, well, I've got to answer, right? I mean, they asked the question, so i got to answer it. They brought up the topic, so i got to address it. They, you know, they, 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 critis they made the criticism, so I've got to defend against it. Don't, don't I have to answer it? Don't I have to deal with it? Don't I have to go there? No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to go there. You don't have to follow the guided tour. You can say, I'm not going to play the game. You don't have to respond to every insult. You don't have to internalize every hurtful message. You don't have to entertain every put down. You don't have to bounce back from every, uh, from every jab. You can just say, I'm, I'm not going to go there. And you should. I get a lot of emails from New Springers. I get way more encouragement than anybody has a right to receive. 
I, I'm, New Springer is always so, so kind and so gracious. And whether it's on social media, somebody will pop on my, on my Facebook page or something and say, you know, say something encouraging or I'll get an email and it's always so awesome. Every once in a while I'll get a message from somebody who wants to coach me up a little bit, help me know how I should do my job better. Um, some things that maybe I'm not aware of that I need to learn. If that's coming from another person on a journey, I'll read it and I'll think about it and I'll digest it and I'll consider it because feedback is a good thing even if it's not feedback that I really want to hear in the moment. But if I, and this is so rare, I mean, this happens once in a blue moon, but every once in a very rare circumstance, I'll get an email from somebody who has an agenda. And they're just writing it because they, they want to cause trouble. They want to push buttons. They want to rock boats. They're out because they have an ax to grind. And I don't read those. And I'm not ashamed to say I don't read those. I have a little round filing cabinet in my office with a plastic liner that they fit perfectly in, right? Because <laughs> I don't need to go there. And you don't either. None of us need the drama. Okay, here's, here's the last thing. Wow, I'm in overtime already. Here's the last thing. Don't write them off completely. Don't write them off completely because the reality that you bring into their world may be just the thing that helps them turn around. I love this. If you know John chapter 3, and I don't have time to read the passage, but in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to one of these Pharisees, one of these troublemakers. And, and we don't know how much Nicodemus participated in this, but he was part of the group. And yet, G, yet Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus at night. He, he, he does it privately. He does it away from his buddies. And he, he asks some very perceptive, deep questions about what it means to have a relationship with God. And, and I think because Jesus senses Nicodemus is now on a journey, something has flipped. He's not a person with an agenda anymore. He's a person on a journey. Jesus is kind and he's gracious. And he, he gives us some of the awesomest information we have about how a person has a relationship with God. If you know, if you know John 3.16 from memory, John 3.16 is something that Jesus said to Nicodemus when Nicodemus came to talk to him. So we have Nicodemus asking, how does a person have a relationship with God? Jesus explains it. We have a stop action. We don't see anything that happens after that. Until we get to John 19, Jesus has been crucified. It's happened. It's over with. And the Bible says that um, Joseph of Arimathea uh, asked Pilate for, Jesus to, for permission to take down Jesus' body. And when Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. I just think it's so cool that one of the men who wanted to make sure that Jesus had a proper burial, one of the men who wanted to make sure that Jesus was treated with respect uh, after the crucifixion, w was this guy who belonged to the group of button pushers who came to talk to him late at night, who, who decided at some point that he was ready to receive the reality that Jesus was bringing. I mean, it's huge. So that means that somebody who is a button pusher has the capacity to turn from a person with an agenda to a person on a journey, and, and it might just be the reality that you've brought to their world that changes the picture. Well, this, this series has been awesome. I've loved it. I've loved it because, as I told you last week, these are things I needed to hear. These were things that, that impact my life. In these last three weeks, I've asked you to focus on the fears that may push you across the line, the self-esteem issues, the things that we focus on. Now I've asked you to think about how to deal with the people that are, that are difficult. And now I want to take you figuratively by the shoulders and I want to turn you around from focusing on all those things that are problematic and now I want you to focus on what your future could be like on the other side of that. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You want to know what will make your boat less rockable? The truth. The truth will make your boat less rockable. The truth about fear. Remember, we said nothing is bigger than God. What you got to be afraid of? 
And then we said with self-esteem, the truth will set you free because God sees you with value. So if you accept the truth of how God sees you, it'll blow all your circuits. It'll change your world. And then we talked, to, you know, we talked about what we focus on. The, the things that we focus on that mess us up are lies. When we focus on the truth, it enriches our life and gives us the potential to actually make a difference in the world. And then now we say the truth will set us free. And we understand that reality is, is, is the most powerful thing that keeps us tethered to the life God wants us to have. And if we're struggling with a button pusher, it's because they're not accepting the truth. And what I'm saying is when we embrace the truth and our boat becomes less rockable, we get to turn around and see the future, the vision for what God wants us to accomplish for our good and for his glory, and then there's going to be no stopping you. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and for your compassion and for the fact that you are patient with us even when our boats are kind of rockable. Thank you for teaching us in this series. Uh, and I pray that you will allow us to apply what we've learned to our lives. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. I'm in overtime, I understand that, but I did talk about having a relationship with God. So I wanna take this moment to say, if, you, if you're in this room and you say, you know what, Jonathan, all my life I thought it was rules and boundaries, rules and boundaries. That's what I had to do to be right with God. And I, I've tried, I've tried, Lord knows I've tried, but I've failed. And I'm ready to have a real relationship with God because you said his love and grace is enough to let me have a relationship with him. I want to give you the opportunity to reach out to God and to start a relationship with him. He's already done all the hard work. He's died on the cross to pay for everything you've done wrong. Anything that you've ever done wrong is not enough to keep you away from him. So I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer. You can say it silently in your heart to God, and it'll be settled once and for all. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. In your name, amen. All right, everybody look this way. If you just prayed that prayer, you just made the biggest decision in your life. And we want to help you get started in your journey with Jesus, okay? So you can take that talk to us card you received. Check the box that says, I prayed to receive Christ. Take it back to guest services. They have a packet. It has a Bible and a booklet and a DVD we want to give you before you leave. Thanks for being here this week. Next week, we start breakout.